Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Of a series that we've been in, this conversation on asking these questions of God, dear God, and these very deeply personal and existential questions. And so we've had the pleasure of having several good friends of the church uh, here uh, to, to address these topics, and, and today is no exception. I, I think uh, Stuart needs very little introduction around here, but what can I say about him? I can tell you this, that he has been serving the gospel since uh, the late 70s when he came to faith in Christ, and he has touched every corner of the globe, uh, bringing the gospel message around. Um, he also is one of these guys that if you need to know anything about history from Adam and Eve to the present, he's got the answer. You just ask him on that. And also, um, he was born and, and bred in, in Scotland, which basically qualifies him to have the coolest accent in the world. I'm, I'm convinced of that one. But beyond that, what he has is he has a grasp of not only the truth of God, but I would say the truth enfleshed, because that's who Jesus was, and he reveals a unique aspect of who God is, and he's somebody that really gets that deeply in his heart. And he's going to present on that a little bit today. So on the question of, dear God, how do I know that you love me, would you welcome our good friend, Stuart McAllister. It's really great to be back here in uh, Rock Point. I, uh, I look forward to this every year, just the opportunity. I love the atmosphere. I love the church. And of course, Randy and Mickey and the team, Laurie, uh, just fabulous people. And you, you feel that. So thank you for welcoming me here. It's really a privilege. So this, the, sub, the topic I've been given, uh, dear God, how do I know you love me? That has a very big resonance. Although I have walked there for many years with God, I'll be honest with you. I've spent most of my life trying to figure out what actually happened in Glasgow, in Scotland, back in 1977. It was unmistakably real, and it re-altered the direction of my life. If I had stayed where I was, um, I think I would either be dead or in prison. Several of my friends, that's exactly what happened. I had left home. Some of you know this. I've said it before. When I was 15, um, I'd been on my own and worked my way into working in a dance hall as a bouncer and, you know, just basically trying to make money. I mean, life was very simple. It was about pleasure, finding girls, getting money, and listening to good rock music, right? I mean, what else is there? Um, and that was kind of the sum of it. And then this lady that I had been living with for a, a couple of years, one day walked in and asked me, what did I think about Jesus? And it was like, who? What? And I was just blown away because I thought God was past the sell-by date and religion was gone. You know, this was the age of Star Trek and Star Wars and, you know, interesting stuff, not God. Um, but something had happened to her. She'd become a Christian. I, did, again, didn't really know what that meant. And then I got invited. After a few weeks, we had broken up. I got invited to come and uh, meet these Christians at her invitation. And I went probably in my mind to beat them up. I mean, really, that was what was <laughs> in the equation. 
Um, I get to this house and really I, I was ambushed by grace. I never believed in God. I had no reason to believe in God. I hadn't really heard the gospel and, you know, what the world had come to me in the world that I had understood. But they, they, they spoke and they shared just words. And yet there was this girl, Joyce, who was clearly something had happened in her life. And they talked about Jesus and the cross and the love of God and all this. And somewhere it all became aware of something to me that there was a presence, there was a power, there was reality to this. And I surrendered and that was the beginning of a journey. So, dear God, how do I know that you love me? That's the question I want to talk about. It's personal for me, and it's personal for you. Because either it's true or it's not. If it's true, it's the most revolutionary thing in existence. Trust me. If it's false, let's just go home, have a beer, and relax. Well, not really relax, because then existentially, we still got the problem of existence and meaning and suffering and pain and death, all of those things to answer. But never mind. If there's no God that loves you, we could just do that on our own with a, with a, a Bud Light in our hand, right? No, sorry. Okay. The great theologian Karl Barth was asked this question once. I remember that Barth basically shifted the whole theological axis. He was a Swiss theologian. And someone thinking, you know, okay, I want this profound truth. Dr. Barth, what was the greatest truth that you've, you've studied? What is it that, you know, give me this, this nugget of wisdom. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the person's waiting, uh, yes, and, next, that is it. That's the truth. That's the greatest thing that he had discovered. That was the hinge point on which all of the theology, all the Trinitarian understanding, everything that he had developed, that's the hinge point. Because he's right. If that is true, it changes everything. If it's not, then it has no relevance whatsoever. So let's think about this for a minute. This wasn't just an intellectual, philosophical idea. It was a practical, existential truth. This had to do with existence, with life as we have to, to uh, live it. So I wanted to turn to a passage in 1 John chapter 4, because the Bible is a, the story essentially about the love of God. That really is the heartbeat of the, the overall narrative from creation through the covenants, through the calling of Israel, through the promises of the Messiah, through the, the ridiculous behavior of the kings, through all of the failures of Israel, right up to the promise of the Messiah, the Roman Empire, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, right up to the eschaton. It's all about love. And here's the passage that summarizes it. You get, can't get a greater synopsis of the whole thing. 1 John chapter 4. So listen to these beautiful words from verse 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, there's a lovely word, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Another interesting little piece. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. 
By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Someone says, I love God, and he says, brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So the Bible makes it clear that in him is life. I always love that phrase, and I use it over and over again. I heard from Michael Green that, you know, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead men live. So this is really all about life. But what is real life, and what does it mean to have real life? And love is the basis of that life. The Christian view of reality is that there is a God. It's a particular view of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word that the great theologians talk about, the dance, they mean that before anything was, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived like a family in unity and love. And from that love comes creation, comes beauty. So the very heart of it isn't one still, not a monistic, central uh, nothing, just an idea. There's a relationship at the heart of the cosmos, and that's what births everything, and love takes the initiative. And Dieter Uchtdorf said this, Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect, He loves us perfectly. Though we may feel lost and without compass, God's love encompasses us completely. He loves every one of us, even those who are flawed, rejected, awkward, sorrowful, and broken. And my comment on that was, who else is there, by the way? Every single person who walked through that door this morning is flawed, rejected, awkward, sorrowful, or broke. Now, I realize some of you don't think so. I mean, I mean, some of you are married to someone who knows that they're perfect and everything's very, you're right? Or some of you have children who are absolutely sure they're perfect or whatever. But every one of us is flawed, broken, rejected. And we know it. There's something wrong. And yet this God, whoever this God is, loves us. One person who got this astonishingly is the man called Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning, who, is a, who wrestled with faith and deeply loved God, was loved by God, and yet wrestled with alcoholism, was a mess in his life in many respects. But the, the thing that kept bringing him back was this truth. And he says this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. You see, the Bible says God is love, not God is loving. Love is the essence of His being. You and I might be loving occasionally, but God is love always because it's who He is, because it's the essence of His character. Peter Crave said this, trusting God's grace means trusting God's love for us rather than our love for God. Therefore, our prayer should consist mainly of raising our awareness of God's love for us rather than trying to rouse God's awareness of our love for Him, like the priests of Baal and of Mount Carmel. And that's what many people do. You come to church because, you know, I, I come in here, I wish that there was a God like this. I wish this was really true, but I come maybe by attending church, maybe by praying, maybe by doing my duty, maybe by doing something. He will see that I'm serious and He'll love me. If I just perform, if I just merit it, if I could just be good enough, if I could just shake off the dust of the past. But it's to reverse the equation. God loves us because of who He is, not because of who you are. 
There's nothing you can do to merit this. There's nothing you can do to lose this. This is from him. Love is his essence. Maybe the question we should be asking is, what do I need to do to just receive it? Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe there's something between me and the love and the God. Maybe it's my imagination. Maybe it's my rebellion. Maybe it's my loving something else. Maybe there's something that stands between me, but that's another issue, maybe another message. But life is hard. Experiences are real, and pain and sorrows abound. At, 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 at the root, we all dream of life as it could be, and maybe, Stuart, you're, you need to go and lie down on a, on a couch and talk to Dr. Freud. Maybe this is just the delusion. You know, that's what you, this is the kind of a Disney vision of reality. You want love and peace and, you know, pink flowers and, you know, mermaids. Well, actually, I don't, but, you know, you, we want, you just want life to work out. So, this God is a delusion thing. Or maybe my longings, my desires are an indicator of reality. There's something bigger out there calling to me. There's something in the universe telling me what the universe is actually like and it's calling to me. But how can I know? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Let's look at it. <laughs> the love of God demonstrated. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There are many voices. Whoa, was that me? Did I see? Hello, hello. Are we back? Am I still here? All right. There are many voices um, with differing answers to life. We're in a pluralistic universe. We're in a world in which we're dealing with many voices. This morning I could wake up, I could turn to Islam. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Or I could turn to uh, Buddhism, uh, that there's no self here, that I am, my, my problem in life is that I have desires, and that to end desires and realize that desire is the problem. So if I just desire not to have any desire, then I'll be okay. What? Yeah, think about it. Hinduism, all is one and one is all. Atman is Brahman, Brahman is, you know, um, if I just merge into the cosmic one and just become a big tea leaf on the sea floating, you know. Uh, doesn't work for me. Does it work for you? I'm just not sure that that really fits reality. They can't all be true. Everybody says, well, all religions are fundamentally the same. They're only superficially different. No, they are superficially the same. They're fundamentally different. They're not saying the same things. So when we come up with God, I'm not talking generically about God as some generic concept. I'm talking about the God revealed in the Bible and Scripture through Jesus the Christ. And there's a particularity to that message, and it has, there may be nonsense, it may be you know, a lot of made-up people, who, that's possible, so we have to investigate. But at least weigh it on its own merits, what it actually says and what it actually means. You see, but maybe you're here and this morning and you're, you say, it, it, it's not about your preference, it's not about what I like or what I feel, it's about whether or not truth exists and what that truth means. Well, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. Let's just, let's just ignore all these things about God and religion. Just somehow hope it'll all work out in the end, yes? Or maybe we can go home this afternoon, we can go on the internet, and we can do a little bit of belief shopping. <laughs> you know, so we'll just Google, I believe in, oh, whatever. What's the one that fits me? A designer-made belief just for my lifestyle, just for my choices. I'm a teenager, 19 years old, and I want to have... Well, I want to have everything. So, let me just see what it's going to take to have everything on my own terms. Oh, there's a belief that fits. Someone out there has got something tailor-made just for you. Doesn't make it truth. 
can make it lies and poison that will kill you and destroy you. So don't trust the internet. Or we say, look, none of this matters. I'll just muddle. Muddle will suffice. You see, the gospel makes claims. The Bible tells a message, and it claims to be the truth. And so we have to weigh and at least explore it, examine it. Truth is not something I control. It's something I submit to. And by the way, everybody in this room and everybody out there lives by faith. Everybody. There is no life without faith. You have faith in something. The only question is what the object of your faith is. It might be Richard Dawkins. It may be Islam. It may be, it may be something else. It may be just your own emotions. It may be what your parents told you. It may be your own unviolable, 100% accurate judgment. I'm always right about everything, so I can't get it wrong. Good luck. Okay. So, what does the Bible say? By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now, hear these words. This is one of the early apostles. This is someone who was raised in a Jewish background, who has no reason necessarily to believe this just out of imagination and philosophy. He's now trying to interpret, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, what has happened. And he says these words, by this the love of God was manifested, that God, He wants us to understand that this is evidence. Something has happened in the, an event took place, and it means something. In fact, if you go back to John's gospel, uh, one of the four gospels that, that witness to the life of Jesus, and they're worth reading over and over again, you get different perspectives on the same great truth. But in John chapter 3, and I remember this in Scotland, I remember walking into this house, meeting these Christians for the first time, thinking there were a bunch, couple of weirdos, um, and over time became one, a weirdo. Um, <laughs> But this is what it said. They, they said this to me several times. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. I couldn't get my head around this because I had no categories. You know, I, I didn't live in a world of grace. I didn't live in a world of kindness. I didn't world of, in a world of love. I lived in a world of survival of the fittest. I lived in a world where you fought or you worked or you did something, but if you wanted to get ahead, you had to get it and take it and keep it, right? Isn't that what most of life is about, education or whatever way it was? And so the idea that, 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 that God, there is a God, there's something in the universe who takes the initiative and comes towards us. For God so loved, He gave. And I was in this house, and what they were saying was that this God who died in history and had saved these people, this girl that I used to live with, was now inviting me to experience this love in Scotland in 1977. I'm like, what? And then it happened. Because the invitation was given, and I bowed the knee, and I experienced the love of God. And it comes to you in the form of a life, not in a set of ideas, because it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In 1 John, it says that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's not he has a set of ideas. It's not he's a member of a church. It's not that he has a set of concepts. It's that you receive life, you either have life or you don't have it. Life is a gift. It's something new. It's a, it's a deposit of the Spirit given because of the love of God. Interesting stuff, if it's true, right? In this is love, it says, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And the word that Christians use, the theological word, as scriptural word behind this is this word, grace. 
You see, I cannot earn God's favor or produce criteria to be loved. I can't perform, serve, or seek to pass. It's not my effort that makes the difference. And this was the problem I've seen subsequently. I didn't know beforehand because I've studied a lot of religions to try and understand them because I've had to speak to people who aren't Christians and they want me to defend Christianity against their alternative claim. That's fair enough. That's totally legitimate. But in every other case, you have to do something. You have to know something, experience something, or do something. The initiative is on you. All religions are some attempt by man to appease the deity and move up. In Christianity, it's grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. God comes to us. God gives what we cannot give ourselves. You see, if I want to go to God and say, look, I'm happy to live out my life here. I'm happy to do whatever. I'll just throw myself on justice. Really? You want justice? 100% justice? Supposing you stand at the end of time, and there, there's a God, you know, you say, well, I'm not sure there is a God, but I find it, oh, crushed the threshold. Oh, he really is there after all. Oh, dear, that's all right. I'll just take my, I've cast the lottery. Yeah, no, he's going to love me. He's all about love anyway, so it's okay. And anyway, I'll just want justice. And God says, hi, how are you? Welcome. Let's, uh, let's judge your life on 100% unmitigated justice. <laughs> hello? Hello? You want to get what you deserve? There wasn't anything ever in your numbers of years of life. There wasn't anything you didn't do. There weren't some things you do that you hope no one ever knows. But the ultimate reality has seen and known it's recorded. You see, I don't want justice. I want mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace, by the way, is getting what you don't deserve. So you've got choices. You can have justice. Everybody will get. God is not unjust. He will give everybody, everybody, 100% justice. But not all will receive grace and mercy because they won't take it. Think about it. This love, Jerry Bridges says, grace expresses two complementary thoughts. God's unmerited favor to us through Christ and God's divine assistance to us through the Holy Spirit. Grace, says Tozer, is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. But then he goes on here to talk about this in the passage of John, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's, a, that's an unusual word, isn't it? Propitiation. It's not a word. I mean, you don't go downtown or go to Macy's or, you know, go down, go on the internet and looking for uh, some propitiation. Can I have three doses of propitiation? What is propitiation? What does that mean? Well, if you'd grown up in the ancient world, people knew very well what it meant to propitiate. Because you lived in a world of gods and obligations and moral. And so, if there were deities and the gods were angry, the, the crops might die and you may get swept away in a tornado and all kinds of things. So, propitiation was the idea of assuaging the gods or the deity. But the reason propitiation is an idea because there's something wrong at the heart of the universe. Here we are at the end of the 21st century. Highly moral America, highly educated, rich, and we are killing each other at a rate that's unbelievable. You can't walk into a shopping mall and be safe. You can't walk into a school and be safe. You can't actually walk into a church these days and be safe. Somewhere, somewhere, somebody's armed to the teeth and angry and wants to kill. Why? Because they can. They're ticked off at something. You say, oh, it's all sociology and psychology. No, there's something at the heart that is wrong. The problem at the heart of the Americans is the problem of the American heart. People feel angry. Ticked off, and sometimes with good reasons. There've been injustice, all kinds of things that need to be put right. 
But only grace can transform the heart. And the Bible says he has come to be the propitiation for our sins, for my sins, for all the wrongs that Jesus died for me so that the payment can be made, so that I can get, because God is holy and pure and loving, and he, he loves us, but because of his very being, I can't be in the presence of evil and darkness because I'm absolutely pure. And if I came into the presence, I am so pure that I would destroy them, not by my will, but by my presence. So the only way that I can be and rescue them and love them is if I find a solution. Oh, wait, why don't I just go and be the solution for them? A substitute so that I will die and I will come between them and sin so that they can come to me. So my love will come to them. I will pay the price. I will open the door so that they can come to me. So the Father sends the Son who by dying sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes to you and I, brings us back through Jesus, back to the Father. Wow, what an equation. And by the way, it's all wrapped up in a word called love. Love is what drives this. Love is what shapes it. Love is what you need. And the good news of that means that forgiveness is possible, that payment and provision are made, and that the driving power is Him. So the love of God declared, 1 John 4, 16 and 17. Now we go back to the same passage. We had changed addresses here. Oh, getting old's a thing, isn't it? Well, some of you will learn that a bit later, but not now. Anyway, 1 John 4, 16, 17. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. You see, some of you come in here and you're, some may not be Christians, you're seeking some of you are believers already, but you're still tormented. Does God love me? If only I could do something that will make life work. And if only a legalism drives you. And I love these words by Tullian Chavidian. Legalism says, well, God will love us if we change. The gospel says God will change us because he loves us. C.S. Lewis said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish to be for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Love is outwardly oriented. But the challenge of belief in this, how can I believe that? That was my problem in the beginning. I was hearing these words. I was hearing the fact that God loved me. Uh, the love of God was manifested, that God had sent His only begotten Son. And I was trying to get my head around this. But I had been raised, raised to trust my own judgment, to trust my own feelings, to trust and, and to, to fear being taken in. And some of us, even as, once we become Christians, we struggle with the idea, can I really believe this? Ambrose Pierce said, doubt indulged and cherished is in danger of becoming denial. But if honest and bent on thorough investigation, it may lead to full establishment of the truth. You see, John is bearing witness. He is one who has experienced this love. So he writes the epistle, and, he, and I'm reading it to you today because I'm trying to share with you that something has happened in space-time that is real and true and is available. This is the data of the Christian life. These are the facts. This is the evidence, the records. So I have a choice. A friend of mine used to say this, feed your doubts and you'll starve your faith to death. Feed your faith and you'll starve your doubts to death. And some of you, it's all, life is all about doubt. You're searching for certainty and you will never find it. But your faith is in your reasoning ability and your reason can't bring you the answer. So you're going to live in permanent uncertainty. 
Faith is commitment. Faith is trust that there is a God there who really moves and really acts and really has given and his presence. And if I respond, it's available. We know and grow by active pursuit. You see that in 1 John 4, 16, because it says that God is love. And by the way, the love that is, is mentioned here is very specific. It's not God is love, L-U-V, or love is God, L-U-V is God. This is a specific thing. This is the love of God manifested in Christ. This is agape. This is the Father's heart. This is the God kind of love which is not emotion. It's not feeling. It's not how I feel about happy about the universe or myself. It's not indiscriminating love that anything goes. And people want to believe that. Oh, I believe that, you know, all, God is love. How many times have you heard that? And then you but you Christians, you believe in legalism and rules and the Bible and so forth. You see, what they do is that we create a definition of love of our own making we project it on reality. And if there is a God, he must be according to the definition that my imagination has created, because that must be what God is like, right? No. Because if God is, and he's independent of your imagination, your dreams, and your reason, then he defines the terms, not you or I. He explains what love is. I may not like it. I may not want it. You have that option, but I cannot change it. So what is it? It's a costly love. In 1 John 3, 16, Jesus said, uh, or John says here, greater man uh, love hath no man they lay down his friend. So that's John uh, chapter 5, 15, anyway. But we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for one another. That's the evidence of love. I know this love because it works through me. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's a new kind of life. And therefore, because of that, it's a life defined by actions. Love is active. It's outward. It's giving. It's not about feeling. It may have feelings, but it's not centered in feelings. It's centered in a love that is a life, that is a power, that is a grace, that is a presence. That means change. And it says here, confidence in the day of judgment. What does that mean? Judgment's not a popular word, is it? And yet judgment is real. It's a real thing in the real universe. All of us have been through enough life. You've gone through high school graduations, uh, life, you know, eval annual evaluations, marriage, whatever. <laughs> life is getting full of evaluations. But there's one yet to come. Because it says in Scriptures, after Judge, after we die comes the judgment. Now, that's something we can either embrace with, oh, whoopee, get going home to be with the dad, the father, cool. Or it could be a day of, oops. But he's made the way. He's given the invitation, and it's real. And it says we can have confidence. Our fear can be addressed. There is no fear in love because we're welcomed home. Let me jump to my last point, and then we'll, we'll wind this up. The love of God defined in 1 John 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who is, fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. N.T. Wright is an Anglican a writer, historian, theologian, written many, many thousands of pages on Jesus, the cross. But I love these words when he says this. The cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window on the very heart and character of the living, loving God. I remember 
as a young man growing up in Scotland, I saw crosses, but I had no idea what it meant. I mean, it was a symbol, all right? We were Christians, sort of backdrops in Scotland. Everybody's a Christian of some kind, culturally Christian, right? It's a Christian nation or something like that. But it didn't mean anything. I had no explanation. And it never, I wasn't interested. Who cares? I mean, churches, I mean, what are they doing? I'd rather watch Doctor Who than go to church in those days. Um, you know, so, I mean, why bother? And then I hear the story, and the story begins to fill in that that Roman symbol and place of execution was actually a place where they hung this man who then came, came back to life. And so the Jewish people at the time, the ones who experienced this, began to say, wait a minute. He said he was the Messiah. He said he was the fulfillment of Israel. He said he was fulfilling the prophecy. He did miracles. He raised the dead. He died. And then if he rose again, and then he did, and we saw it, wait a minute, that was Yahweh. That was the creator. And he was on a cross. What was he doing there? Good question. Why would God, with all this power, with all this ability to destroy his enemies and judge the world, go to a cross? Exactly. It's absurd, isn't it? Weird, strange, or true. And if it's true, wow. Only those who have been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help. Nor must we search for signs of love worthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves us because of who God is, not because of who we are. And that love changes us. You see, this love means it's personal. That love transforms. That love comes into your life. You know, the reason I no longer like to beat people up it's because of grace. Trust me, there are many times when I would like to, especially driving on Atlanta roads. There's all kinds of excuses. Somebody gets rude and gets in your face. Yes, I would like to revert to old Glasgow ways of dealing with reality. So would many of you. But I don't because there's something greater now within that holds my conscience, that guides my heart, that instructs my behavior, that gives me power to say no. And sometimes I blow it, trust me. We all blow it. But then grace wells, brings me back. Because God is, God cares, God knows, God loves, and God gives. So how do I know today? Well, I would say if you don't know, read the Gospels. How do I receive? Well, I receive by repentance and faith. And as I close, I want to give those of you, all of you, Christian or non-Christian, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's he, under the Spirit, he's writing about all that this gospel means. And you can see just how hard this is to explain. He tries to get his head around it. But he knows you won't get this by reason alone. And I can't get this by my reason alone. There's an impartation that only comes by an act of God. So listen to this prayer. And this is for you personally. As you go out to the church today, as you go home this Memorial Weekend, Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul and take them personally to you. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through verse 21. This is Paul. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, 
and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would that change your life this morning? Yes? Let me pray. Lord, bless this church. Bless each that listens. Fill us with your glory. Show us how to walk in this truth and live it out day by day. Give America grace and mercy. This country is hurting in tragic pain and sorrow and bitterness and mess. Help us to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Stuart actually brought a, a handout for those of you who are interested. It's at the Welcome Center. kind of goes along with the message today. It's something you can take home free of charge. But on that note, for that immense amount of depth that we were offered today, can we show them our appreciation? And, uh, I got my homework cut out for the next two years. You probably grabbed so many different things from that message to answer this question. But as we wrap up, let me just leave you with two that hit me in the, in the first service and hit me just as strongly in the second. Two things that he shared. One, love is not a feeling. Today's culture, everything's about what you feel. Love is an action. So when you ask God, God, how do I know that you love me? Even in the depths of not feeling it, you don't even feel it in that moment. How do I know? He answers the cross and the empty tomb. The cross where Jesus poured his life out and the empty tomb when he found your life again. That action shows you always that he loves you. And the second thing is this. He shared from 1 John that said, when John said, if God so loved us, does he? Well, I would say he does. And if God so loved us, then we ought to love each other that same way, brothers and sisters. I think if we can know that first part in the depths of our soul, and then from that place of love, live out that second part. Well, maybe we'll just get this Christian thing right yet. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for the words of wisdom shared from our brother today. And we ask you, God, to bring these deep into our soul as we carry them forward today. Help us to not only know that you love us with an everlasting love, an unshakable love, but let that break something in us, God, and bring forth your love to the whole world around us. Even in the moments when we don't feel it, we want to carry your love to the world. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. amen.